who's reading my Revelation 21 passage? David, could you stand and aim that way? All right, before you start. Jesus came to earth. Where was he before that? Heaven, right? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, part of God, eternal from ages past, beyond ages, beyond time. And that's where he lived, in heaven. Read that passage, Revelation 21, 18 through 23. Amen. Thank you. Now, that's one of the very few descriptions of heaven we have in Scripture. But it sounds pretty cool, right? Gates made of giant pearls, streets made of gold. There's no light because God lights everything himself. Like, that sounds cool. I want to see that. That's where Jesus left. That's what he had to give up in order to come and become one of us. Everybody with me? Jesus lived in heaven. That was his home. How many of you have left home for a period of a couple months at some point in your life? And you really missed it, maybe? You wanted to maybe go back? Jesus had to leave his home. Now, if your home is heaven, I expect that's double tough. Okay? Or infinite, maybe. Okay? He had to leave his home behind to come and be with us. He had to leave his family Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. He had to leave. He was used to being with God in every sense at all times for eternity, and now he wasn't. Imagine what that would feel like. Imagine what it would feel like for yourself to no longer feel the presence of God ever, to no longer feel his love for you. You know it by faith, but you maybe don't feel it, okay? I think that's just a pale comparison of what it was like for Jesus to have to leave heaven, to have to leave the Father in the way that he did. Um, Jesus gave up a lot to become one of us. He gave up a lot before he even was born. Uh, Let's read Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Thank you.
Amen. So, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, right? He was fully human, but he was still fully God. Don't tell Paul, but I don't understand what that means. I don't don't get that. How is that possible? How can you be 100% God and 100% man at the same time? I don't know at all, okay? But the scripture teaches that. It's one of those things we take on faith. How does that work? How can God become a human? That doesn't make sense to me. But it's awesome, and I praise God for it. And so Jesus, in order to become a human, he had to, as Philippians says, empty himself, or that version says, lay down his divine privileges. And so Jesus had to give up the power and glory of God in order to become human. He had to set that down and leave that in heaven. Does that make sense? Okay, in order to become 100% man, he had to set down the power of that divinity. He was still fully divine. He was still fully God. But all the power and omnipotence, which means all-powerfulness, that comes along with that, he set aside in humility. And that verse says, and he didn't quibble about that. He didn't shirk from that. He said, yes, I'll lay that down. I will sacrifice that for a time in order to come to earth and become a human being. And so when Jesus was here, he didn't do all those miracles as the second person of the Trinity. Does that make sense? He didn't heal people because he was God. He healed people because he was a human being submitted in humility to God. He was our example. So the Holy Spirit did those miracles through Jesus when he was on earth. Everybody with me? Jesus had set down the miracle-ness that he had every right to have. He gave that up for a time in order to become human. And as a human, he performed miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus is always saying, I do only what I see the Father doing. I don't know anything. It's only the Father. It's only the Father. Because as a man, as a human being, Jesus entered a place of humility. He became subservient to the Father and to his will and to everything that he was doing, as opposed to the same kind of oneness that they had had before. Everybody with me? I know this is kind of murky stuff because we don't understand how the Trinity works, <laughs> but just, just go with me here. So he was 100% man, 100% God. Everything he did on earth, he did as a human being, submitted in humility to the power of the Holy Spirit, and through him the Holy Spirit did all those miracles, just like he does through us. He was being our example. Sometimes you can look at the Bible and people say, well, yeah, sure, Jesus healed that guy. He's God. That doesn't count. But it does count because he was a human being who was humble and submitted to the Lord. And he asked the Holy Spirit to heal that man, and the Holy Spirit healed. Are you with me? But he laid down that omnipotence, that all-powerfulness of God in order to become a human being. Think of what that must have been like, to be all-powerful and then not. Seriously. To be all-powerful and then not. To have to humble yourself and wait to hear, just like we hear from God. To wait to sense what the Holy Spirit wants to do and follow that. Jesus is our, our great high priest because he understands everything that we go through, including sometimes listening to God takes a little work, knowing what it is God wants us to do. Jesus experienced all those things, all of those things, because he had to set down that omnipotence in order to become a human being. He set down his omnipresence. Omnipresence means being everywhere at once. Okay, God is everywhere at the same time, right? How does that work? Still no idea. Okay? How is God everywhere at once? I have no idea. But he went from being everywhere at once to being stuck in one specific place in space-time as a baby 2,000 years ago. 
okay? He was everywhere, he was everything, and now he's stuck in one tiny place. Imagine what it would be like if for some reason, starting tomorrow, you were condemned to stay in your bedroom and never leave it. You can never leave your bedroom. For 30 years, you can't leave your room. What would it be like to not be able to leave your room for 30 years, to be stuck and confined in that room? You can't see your family. You can't see your loved ones. You're used to being with your loved ones all the time. You can't see them now. You can talk to them, but you can't see them. You can't be with them in the same way that you were before. You are stuck. You are confined in that tiny bedroom for 30 years. Now, does that sound like that would suck? Yeah. Be like prison. Okay? Now, if we think that would be terrible, imagine Jesus, who is in every room of every house in the world, now being stuck in one room of one house and being a baby, so that if he wants to get into the next room of that house, somebody has to pick him up and carry him. Think about that. Think about what Jesus had to give up just to be born, just to become one of us. What Jesus sacrificed for us through the incarnation, which means Jesus becoming a person when he came to us. It's, it's incredible. It, it blows my mind. And I know I only understand like 0.006%. Um, but it is amazing. It is amazing just to become one of us so that he could be with us, so that he could help us to become part of his family. He was willing to give up all of that to be confined to one tiny person instead of being everywhere at once to be reliant on following the Spirit and following the Father instead of being the omnipotence of the universe. He went from being the owner of the universe to being a poor servant. They were poor. They were peasants. Okay? Jesus owned everything. He created all of the earth, it says. And now he's a peasant who's probably have to scrape, in, scrape it in together to get by sometimes. Okay? He went from being Jehovah Jireh, the great provider, who provides for all our needs, to now being dependent on his parents for food, clothing, shelter. He was now completely dependent on everything. Had his parents not fed him or protected him properly, he would have died. Jehovah Jireh, the great provider, completely dependent now on human beings for food and life and protection. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. The level of humility here has never been seen before on the earth. Never been seen before. The God of the universe willing to go to these lengths for us, willing to give up everything he gave up, willing to put himself in risky positions, vulnerable positions for us. It's, it's staggering. It's absolutely staggering to me, the humility of the Christmas story. And through all this, God is demonstrating his love for us through sacrifices. Because sacrificial love is the greatest form of love. Jesus himself said that, right? Remember the verse? Greater love has no one than this, that they lay down their life for their friend. Jesus knew what he was talking about. He gave a lot up to come to us, his friends. He gave up everything. He knows that that is the greatest form of love. And when he said that, he was weeks away from giving up his earthly life for us. The greatest form of love is a sacrificial love, and that's what Jesus is demonstrating here through this humility through the Christmas story. So let's read it. Luke 2, 1 through 7. Now remember, I want you to listen to this like you'd never heard it before. Okay? Just listen to the story. Who's reading this one? Blake, thank you. Luke 2, 1 through 7.
was dead and rose three days. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went out from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to the place of Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to, to be married to him and to present him with child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest in the family of her. All right. So, the setting is Israel, right? During the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, to be specific. Now, the Romans controlled Israel at this time. They called it Palestine. And when you were an outlying Roman province, like they were far away from Rome, your only purpose to the empire was to send money back to Rome, to make the rich, fat pagans richer and fatter and paganer. Okay? So... Israelites were taxed into oblivion. Okay? The Roman provinces were poor as can be because Rome took all the money and brought it back to themselves. Israel was ruled with an iron fist during this period. This is an oppressive pagan government that is evil and horribly <laughs> degraded and immoral. Um, this is an aside. Um, I, I heard somebody say recently this an important person in the church at large who said that God's not going to bless America. He's not going to send any kind of revival or anything like that because we're so immoral right now. It's so dark. We're so immoral. He's not going to bless us because we don't deserve that because we're such terrible people. And false. <laughs> He's wrong. That's so false. Read Luke 2. God the Father looks down and says, hmm, Rome. Horribly oppressive. There's a hundred words in Latin for murder. A hunt, or to kill. A hundred different words. Because they were so creative in how to kill people. They loved to kill people. I'm serious. I was an ancient studies major. I, I studied Latin and Roman history and all that kind of stuff. The Romans are terrible. <laughs> terrible. Yes, they built the road and the aqueduct and all this great stuff. But they were horrible. Horrible. They only built those things so that they could kill more efficiently. Okay? We're talking about oppressively pagan. And we're talking about horribly immoral. We may be immoral in this country. There's, there's problems, right? We all know that. Morally bankrupt and all that. But we do not have public holidays to let people take off work so that you can go to the orgy. That's what they had in Rome. It's orgy day. Don't go to work. Go have fun. I'm, this, I'm not making that up, okay? So we might be bad, but we're nothing compared to what Rome was like. It was... It's, it was unbelievably terrible, okay? Unbelievably terrible. And God looks down at this horribly degraded, immoral, pagan, oppressive, violent place and says, what a perfect place to send my son. What a perfect time to bring Jesus into the world. Finally, we've been waiting for him forever. This is the perfect time. One of the darkest moments in Israel's history. The perfect time to bring Jesus. And so <coughs> we have every reason to have hope right now in our country that God is going to bring us a great move of his spirit. Because when things are the darkest is when God shines a bright light. Amen? And that's why I want to pray for revival more and more, including tomorrow at 6.30 upstairs. That was a plug. Okay, that's not, none of that was the sermon. That was free. You can just keep that one. Uh, <clears throat> so Rome, bad. Let's leave it at that. Joseph had no choice but to leave his house and his job and take his pregnant betrothed, not yet married lady friend, <laughs> lady friend, to, 
His betrothal. Betrothal was stronger than an engagement. It was like a legally binding contract, okay? You had to get a divorce to, to end a betrothal, but you weren't quite married. You hadn't conjugated yet. That, that happened at the marriage day. Okay. So it's not, but it wasn't like our engagement that you could just be like, just kidding. Um, <laughs> most people don't do that. Um, and so when Rome said, hey, what it actually was is Caesar Augustus says, I'm having an anniversary. I want everybody to give an extra tax this year so we can have a massive party in my town. So all you guys a thousand miles away, pay me money. And so Joseph had no choice. He had to leave. He had to go to the house of his father, or the town of his father, which was David, so Bethlehem. He had to leave his job. He's already a peasant. He's poor. He has to leave his job, which is how you make money. He has to leave it to go on a multi-month pilgrimage down to Bethlehem in order to pay a whole bunch of money, not to mention the expense of the trip. Okay? It's a 90-mile journey. probably took him the better part of a week. Um, and it wasn't a fun journey because you're talking about a lady who's not just pregnant, but like really pregnant. Okay. Uh, my wife is an obstetrician and I asked her and she said she would strongly discourage a full term woman from making this journey. Okay. Imagine being great with child as the King James says, I love that great with child and having to walk or bounce up and down on a donkey for the better part of a week to go 90 miles. It's no wonder that she was going into labor as soon as they hit town. Right? This was dangerous, folks. This was risky. You don't do that. We don't let women fly after 36 weeks. And there she is making this 90-mile journey. There are bandits on the road all the time. This was a risky, risky journey, and yet God allowed that to happen. God allowed that to happen because he's showing his love through sacrifice. He's sacrificing, and so, so is Mary. That's for sure. And so uh, they get to Bethlehem after this dangerous journey, and there's no room for them in the inn. Jesus is rejected before he's even born. Before he's even born, we reject him. Um, why wasn't there room for them in the inn? Well, I don't know. Part, part of the reason was that there was a big census. Part of the reason was because Joseph, who was probably about 30, had a young teenage girl who was about to go into labor, to whom he was not married. Now think about that for a sec. Nobody else understood what was going on. Nobody else understood that this was God at work. They saw an out-of-wedlock baby about to be born. And that's a, that's a big deal in that culture. We, we think it's a big deal in the church today, you know, unwed pregnancy. Back then, it was a stoning offense. Joseph could have had her stoned, legally. Not cool. So I think they faced a lot of persecution, not just because the Romans were in charge, but because there's going to be some, uh, some people who are pretty judgmental about that sort of a situation. I also personally think that the reason, one of the reasons Jesus wasn't accepted, even as a prophet, let alone the Messiah, in his hometown of Nazareth, is because everybody still saw him as a bastard. He couldn't be a great prophet. We, we know what happened. We know. No, there's no way he's from God. So that's, be that as it may, there was no room for them in the inn. So she laid the child in a manger, which is where animals eat. So she gave birth to the Messiah in a place where livestock was kept. Okay? Where, wherever it was, we don't know. Now, I would guess that most of us would not stand for that, for our spouse or ourselves or our siblings or our grandchildren to be born in a place where livestock is born. No. No, no, no. Babies are born in the hospital. They're born at home. They're born in a taxi on your way to the... Uh, I mean, 
that happened to a friend of mine. Um, so, but like, they're not born where you keep livestock. That's inappropriate for anyone. It's unclean. It's ceremonially unclean, which is a whole other story as a Jewish thing. Uh, needless to say, this is not the way anyone expected the Messiah to come. It, the, the, the Christmas story is it's crazy. It's really crazy. And again, God is demonstrating his love through sacrifice. That he let his child be born where they keep livestock. Not in a palace, not in a hospital, no doctor. So, recap. The Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, the second person of the Trinity, comes to us, Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Merry Christmas, right? He's given up the beauty and majesty of heaven to become one of us. He gave up the omnipresence of his nature, where he was everywhere at once, to now be stuck in one specific place at one specific time. He gave up the divine power and might of God. He laid that down willingly, it says, to become one of us. And how do we welcome him to the world? How does mankind welcome him? A terribly risky journey late in pregnancy, part of an oppressed minority people group by a terrible authoritarian government, discrimination both as a Jew but also as someone who got a teenage girl pregnant before the time was right. Um, according to some people, obviously, we know it was a divine conception. Um, they're born into poverty and to a no-account family. These are peasants. These are not the people who are supposed to give birth to the king of kings. They're nobody, absolutely nobody. So, and then, you know, to lay the final humiliation on top of the pile, the king of kings is laid to rest where they keep livestock. It's, it's absolutely insane to me. And when you look at it from the outside, it's, it's a preposterous story. And it, uh, to me, it's almost offensive. That is not how Jesus should have been welcomed to the world, right? And by the way, nobody who is trying to make up a God would write that story. Nobody who's trying to make a God up and invent somebody is going to make up that story. This is a ridiculous story that no one would believe. The Jews mocked this story. For the first couple centuries of the church, they looked as that couldn't be the Messiah. Look at the way he was born. Would God Almighty bring the Messiah in that kind of way? No way. That's ridiculous. But that's exactly the way God wanted to bring the Messiah to the world. And there was a reason for that. Beyond simply showing his love for us through sacrifice, there was a reason. Um, All right. So quick history lesson. If you don't like history, it's only going to take three minutes. Um, So if you're looking at a map, pretend I'm a map. There's a map in front of me. Um, You've got the Roman Empire over here. There's two great empires of the day, the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire or the Persian Empire. So over here is Rome. They have all of Europe, North Africa, um, Asia Minor, and the far eastern edge of the Roman Empire is a little, tiny little sliver called Israel, okay, the far eastern edge of the empire. Right next to that is the border of the Parthian Empire, the Persian Empire, that own all of that half of Asia, okay, um, the, the leftovers of the empire of Alexander the Great on that side of the world. So you have that huge empire, you have this huge empire, who are, have been at war for centuries. Centuries of warfare. Israel's stuck in the middle. There were a lot of soldiers there. It was a scary place. Um, Rome had just taken Armenia. Uh, the Parthian Empire, like 80 years ago, had just taken a bunch of territory. They were actively fighting. Okay, Which, another quick pause, it's very interesting that the the um, wise men made a journey because they were in the Parthian Empire, most likely in Babylon, and they went all the way into Israel to worship the Messiah. They went into enemy territory. 
had they been found by the Romans, they probably would have been executed as spies. They wouldn't have said, what are you here for? We're here to worship a kid. Nope. One of the 100 ways of killing you. Okay? They took a huge risk as well to come and worship the Messiah. But we're not talking about West. Okay. So you have, the, you have the Roman Empire. You have the Parthian Empire. Israel's right in the middle. The rulers of both of these empires refer to themselves as, get this, the king of kings. Caesar Augustus was referred to as the king of kings. The ruler of the Parthian Empire was always referred to as the king of kings. Partly because he controlled many kingdoms, but he was the king in charge of all that. He was the king of kings. In, in the meantime, tiny Israel, where the real king of kings is going to come and be born. Okay? Now imagine what it would be like for one of these emperors to have an heir. I just had a baby boy. This is the heir to the throne. This is the next king of kings. How do you think they would have been received? A year's worth of feasting? Right? Trumpets galore. It would have been an insane pageantry of magistry and, and, and expenditure and all this kind of stuff. A new king of kings has been born. Every important person from the kingdom is going to have to travel there and bow down their knee and pledge their fealty and their worship to that little baby who is the new king of kings is being born. Everyone would know it. Everyone in the Parthian Empire would know that their new king of kings had been born. And everyone in the Roman Empire would know that king had been born too because they're their enemies. Everyone would know. It would have been an insanely majestic, splendid birthday party. Probably would have lasted years. And here you have the real king of kings being born. And it couldn't possibly be more different than that. It couldn't possibly be more different. There's no palace. There's no great physicians. There's no trumpets. There's no heralds going out to all the lands telling people that the king of kings has been born. None of that. The complete opposite of the way the world would expect. And God did that very intentionally. Right in the middle of those two great empires, he put the king of kings, the true king of kings, in the most humble way possible because God was showing that he demonstrates true might, true power through humility. True power is not demonstrated by your ability to beat up your enemies or your ability to conquer throw a great party. True might, true power is shown through humility. And so God allows Jesus to be born in the most humble way possible as a demonstration of who he was. And that was a foreshadowing of the cross, right? The birth of Christ was very humble, and then there was his death. He was ridiculed and tortured and eventually murdered by his enemies, right? You don't get much more humble than allowing that to happen. And God, obviously, at any time, could have come down and wiped out the Romans and the ungodly leaders of Israel and said, this is the king, worship him. And God chose not to do that. Because his power is demonstrated through humility. That's how the power of God is demonstrated. And love is demonstrated through sacrifice. It's incredible. The, the way God does things sometimes is just, it's just amazing to me. Yes. Right, the, the, the one and only thing, the one and only fanfare of the birth of Jesus was the angels that showed up to Jerusalem and the temple? No. Even the town of Bethlehem? No. They were out, outside town. There were just a few shepherds scattered around. Those are the people the angels came to. And shepherds, by the way, were the bottom rung of, Israel, of Israelite society. The bottom rung. They couldn't worship in the temple. They couldn't testify in court. 
Shepherds literally were not allowed to testify in court because they were considered unclean and untrustworthy. And so the one group of people that God announces, hey, the king of kings is born, are people that literally can't tell anybody, legally. I'm sure they told the people around, and I'm sure none of them believed it. That's the only people that God told. Again, humility. The angels could have gone anywhere, presumably. They're angels. They can, like, fly or, or at least move fast. I don't know. Right? They could have gone anywhere. But no. God's like, no, you tell them. You tell the most humble people here. You tell the bottom of the barrel. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Again, that just demonstrates the humility of the birth of Jesus. It's just an astounding humility. Um, and, and he was demonstrating that to the whole world through the birth of Jesus compared to the birth of what the King of Kings would have been like in one of these other countries. And that's the God we serve. This is the God that we serve who is willing to give up everything to have the most humble, humiliating even, birth possible for us. And see, we, I see this, and I, I almost get offended a little bit when I look at the Christmas story, but God saw it as the most beautiful thing that had ever taken place in the world. Because to him, showing his power through his humility is perfect. It's gorgeous. It's amazing. It's exactly how he wanted to do it, or he would have done it in but he wanted that to make that sacrifice because that was the point. Jesus was sacrificing everything for you and me so that we could become a part of his family. He gave up all that he gave up. He went through all that he went through. And then he lived life as a peasant who was ridiculed most of the time, poor, didn't have a home. So the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head when he was doing ministry. And then torture and death. All for us. All that incredible humility, the, the power it takes to do that, the strength it takes to be that humble. I mean, even, think about the simplest thing. Turn the other cheek. If someone slaps you, you should turn the other cheek, Jesus said. That takes a lot of humility. If somebody hits you, to stand up and not hit him back. Let him hit you again. I, I wouldn't want to let a dude hit me again. I wouldn't want to let him hit me the first time. But Jesus is like, that's how you show humility. And that's strength. That's power, and that's how God showed humility through the birth of his son. And it's, it's a foreshadowing of the crucifixion, which is the most humble moment in human history. God could have obviously made sure that Jesus was born in the greatest palace ever, best doctors, great trumpets. The gold, frankincense, and myrrh were just tastes of what it is that Jesus should receive, how we should have welcomed him, <laughs> but we didn't. We rejected him. We didn't even give him a room for his poor pregnant mom who had to give birth on a, in the straw with sheep next to her doing what sheep probably does, right? Incredible, absolutely incredible. I would not stand for that for my kids. No way. And God's like, yeah, I will stand for that. I will let my son be born that way because I love them so much. That's why I'm doing all this. That's why we're even doing this in the first place. I want to help them become my children too. I want to help you become part of the family. That's why God did all of that. So this Christmas, I want you to think not just about the cuteness of the, the sheep and the lambs and the cute little animals in the manger area and all that kind of stuff. That's all good. But think about what Jesus gave up when you see that baby in the manger. Think about everything he gave up, his omnipotence, his omnipresence to be stuck as a little baby who does everything little babies do. They have to nurse in order to live. 
dependent on another human being. They poop all the time and stink. I'm serious. That's disgusting. And in the Old Testament, that kind of thing was, was uncool and unholy, and you, did, you tried not to do that kind of stuff. You were very careful about that um, in terms of ritual purity. And yet he was willing to become that for us. It was incredible. Eventually, torture, degradation, death on the cross. Again, for us. The incredible amount of sacrifice that he was showing us by, this, by these acts of love, the incredible amount of humility that he was demonstrating just so we can be part of his family, just so we can be with him. It's amazing. And so we, we could go on and on about this, but um, I don't want you to lose sight of this kind of stuff this Christmas season. Instead of just thinking about all, all the wonderful things that we like about Christmas, which are good, think about what Jesus gave up for us. And if, if there's somebody here tonight who hasn't yet bowed their knee to worship the Son of God, the King of Kings, who came to be with us, maybe this is the year that you should do that. I don't know if there is anybody here, but, but if you're not sure whether or not you're in Christ, maybe you've just never made that personal commitment, or if you're just uncertain as to whether or not you're, you're saved, whether or not you're with him, whether or not the King of Kings is your Lord, talk to somebody before you leave. Okay? Talk to anybody here before you leave. Because you can be confident, 100% confident, that you have been bought with a, with a price and that you are now in God's family. Amen? And so if you are not confident in that, talk to somebody. We'll pray for you. There's no judgment. There's no judgment. We have all been there. <laughs> It was about but humility, I'm after all. Thankful, pardon? It was about humility, after all. Careful. That's right. <laughs> but I'm thankful for receiving this thing. I'm grateful that he was prepared and he gave us something that could move us. I've heard Christian passages that haven't been touched. I probably do. Also, giving birth tends to involve a lot of screaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it, it's it's a beautiful song. I agree, it's a beautiful song, but that was a hard night. And once the baby's born, they're screaming that way too. Yeah. I have a couple of discussion questions, if, if you're amenable to that. Um, here's the first one. Then you guys can just break up into groups just real quickly for the last few minutes. So here's the big, so what? Rather than me telling you so what, I'm going to make you think about it. How will you respond to a God who is willing to give up everything for you? How will you respond to a God who is willing to give up everything to be with you? I know that's kind of a personal question, but let's break up into groups, five, six people, whatever, near you, feel free to move around, turn, whatever it is. Talk about that for just a couple minutes. And this is a safe place. Nobody's going to judge you or yell at you or try to correct, you know, crazy theology or something like that. We're just going to listen and appreciate what everyone has to say. And, uh, if there's something you want to be kept in confidence, tell the people you're talking to, and they will keep in confidence, right? Yes, yes right. we will do that. Amen. So, break up into groups real quick for just a couple of minutes to talk about this. How will you respond now to a God who is willing to give up everything to be with you? Perfect. went through a lot of humility in order to adopt us as his children. Amen? So here's the next question after how will you, how will you respond. Is how will you incarnate? <laughs> I'm proud of the day I used that word. Um, how will you incarnate the humility and sacrificial love of Jesus during this Christmas season? So what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? In, and there are a couple suggestions of ways to think about that. How are you going to show the humility and sacrificial love of Jesus, maybe in your family, with your friends, at work, or maybe there's some other way? How can you emulate the example of Jesus with that kind of humility and sacrificial love during this Christmas season? Um, how are you going to act like Jesus did? Thank you for that. How are you going to act like Jesus? <laughs> How are you going to act like Jesus in terms of expressing humility and sacrificial love like he did? How are we going to respond in a similar way in the context of family or friends or work or whatever this Christmas season? So think about maybe some practical examples or some general stuff. And if you can't think of anything right now, that might be a good thing to pray about on your own and ask the Lord, how can I be like you were? How can I show that kind of humility? How can I show that kind of love to the people who you've put in my life? So, okay, talk. Discuss. Be Jesus with skin on. Yes, be Jesus with skin on. Because a skinless Jesus is gross. <laughs> Shoot, that was in the mic. <laughs> Continue to show us throughout this Christmas season uh, what it means to have such a humble and self-sacrificing God and how we can better respond in kind and to become more and more like you, Lord Jesus. Help us not to be entitled like the world is so entitled, 
thinking people owe them everything because you, who really did deserve everything, accepted nothing in humility. Help us to be more like you, Lord Jesus, and also to show that love and that humility to our friends and our family throughout this season. In Jesus' name, amen. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Amen.